The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently, we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers who are in the house, and anybody else I may have missed, to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. We use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown. We are pre-recording the show uh, due to the time restraints of our guests that we have on this, this afternoon, or this morning. I'm going to get confused here in the uh, in the pre-record. I'm still coming to you from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsLibertyMedia.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that I'll warn you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us uh, here. And if you want to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and you scroll down on the right side of the page, those of you who are listening by way of Red State Talk Radio, you can check out the live feed that will be going, the second video that's down there, that will be streaming live when we do the show. You can click onto that, you can enlarge it, you can see the faces made for radio right here, and uh, you can also click on to that and join us in the chat. We've got a lot of people in the chat, uh, and I'm sure you'll make some new friends there. Also above that will be Bradley's show from the previous day. You can click on and play that and, and see Bradley. And then that goes live at 3 p.m. Eastern time with his show today. And then while you're there, also subscribe to our newsletter, sonsoflibertymedia.com. And we don't rent your email. We don't sell it to anybody. We don't spam your email inbox. We send out one email a day. It's all the articles that we have for the day. And... Uh, you get those, including the morning show. This show right here, I put in an article format. You'll get the video portion. You'll get the podcast. You'll get uh, the video that we're going to talk about in full because there's no way I can play it <laughs> during this time. Uh, you'll get the links that we have from our guest here, links to his books and stuff. All that will be in the archive later in the day, and then also you get it in the email in the evening. Now, if you support the Sons of Liberty Media's message, we don't have our hand out to you for money. We're doing it, trusting that the Lord provides to his people. And that's all we'll say about it, except if you want to be a part of helping us out and meeting the needs, because we do have them, there's a donate button at the top of Sun Celebrity Media. You can click it and make a donation, or you can partner with us monthly at a um, amount you want to give. You can do that by becoming a son or daughter of liberty. That's at the top of Sun Celebrity Media also. And then our store button is here at the top of the page as well. You can click that, get some products that are great conversation starters. There's some products in there that help equip you. 
to take what we term talk radio and make it do radio because none of this means anything if the people aren't the solution to the problems that we have. And that's really the issue. If you think that we have problems and your question is, well, who do we vote for? If that is your mentality, then it's a good thing you're listening to Sons of Liberty because we want to get you off of that mentality and we want to get you as part of the solution because you are. You and I are the solution to the problems that we have today. Now, you can also catch the live video feed on my, on my Twitter account at FPP Tim, Periscope and Twitch at Setting Brush Fires, our Facebook page at Bradley Dean SOL. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, although we're not using it because we've got two strikes on that. We've already lost two channels. Uh, Bradley Dean, look that up on YouTube and you can subscribe there for you know if and when we ever get back on there. DLive.tv at The Sons of Liberty and Cutting Edge TV on Roku. The phone lines are closed today, so we won't be taking any calls. But I'm sure that we don't need those because my guest is not a stranger to many of you, although some of you, the first time we had him on, many of you said, can you get that guy back on every week? Well, I wish I could, but he's a very busy guy, and uh, a lot, he's in demand from a lot of people. But Gilbert Griffin is a writer. He's a documentary film producer. He's a founder of Freedom Force International. Listed in Who's Who in America, he is well-known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand, and he certainly does that. He's formed the Red Pill University. They are about to have the Red Pill Expo, and it is my delight my pleasure to welcome back to the Sons of Liberty, G. Edward Gordon. Great to have you again, man. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Glad yeah. to be on board. Yeah, now the first time we had... I took you, um, you know, you got in Marty McFly's uh, uh, DeLorean, and we went back 50 years to a a, a a presentation that you had on communism. And we spoke a little, we spoke a lot about that. And there were two things that we really came away with, and that was, you said there were the Marxist-Leninists in our country that want to take down America, and they're going to do it by two different ways. They have the peaceful revolution and they have the violent revolution, and both are accomplishing the same thing. Now, I got wind of another interview that you did some years back with a fellow by the name of Norman Dodd, and he was a congressional investigator of tax-exempt foundations, and I thought this was maybe not the most eye-opening, but it sort of put a lot of things in perspective when you look at people like Bill Gates, when you look at people like David Rockefeller and the and the Rockefellers and how they're funneling their how they funneled money into America, not just America, but other countries through these foundations, these nonprofit organizations to undermine the societies. And uh, and that's why I wanted to bring you on, because I, I don't know of anybody else who who interviewed Norman Dodd. But you had a, a unique experience to interview him some years before he died. And I kind of wanted to bring you on to see if we could delve into that topic of these tax-exempt foundations. And do they actually, in fact, work alongside what we talked about before with the Marxist-Leninists? Well, yes, I'm delighted to address that topic. I don't get a chance to do that very often because uh, it's old history, or it seems like it's old history. But, you know, Tim, as you so well pointed out, that the old history is the new history because it's been going on for a long time. And these strategies that are being used by the enemies of freedom uh, have been in place for over 100 years. And if you want to really step further back and take a look at the 
big picture. It's been going on for thousands of years because it's merely the age-old struggle for some people to want to dominate and control other people. And I guess that's part of the human instinct, although fortunately I think it's a very small part for most of us, but some of it have it very strong. And anyway, I don't want to go back too far in history. It's back to Norman Dodd is good enough. That was right after World War II. And um, as you well know, but maybe your audience needs a little uh, briefing on this, as best I can recall it to memory now, is after World War II, there was a, a growing awareness and concern among a lot of Americans over the fact that tax, very powerful tax-exempt foundations were promoting communism. Now, that was not just an idle statement, like they're promoting communism. Uh, there were organizations like the Carnegie Endowment Fund for Peace and, and the Ford Foundation and giants like that that were actually circulating uh, propaganda pieces written by Joseph Stalin. And they were printing them and circulating them and saying, this is the kind of ideal that America should strive toward. We just fought a war, we've defeated those bad Nazis, and now we've got this wonderful communism to live up to. And America ought to take a good look at this and all that kind of thing. I didn't know anything about that, by the way. I was alive right after World War II. I I was alive during World War II, but I was a young kid. I didn't really know much about it, except I was living in Detroit at the time, and a couple of times a week we'd have air raid practices where the sirens would go off and everybody would have to turn off their lights and cover their windows with blankets. And My Aunt Alice was a, a block warden. She would go out and patrol the streets of the block, making sure that all the windows were closed and there were no lights out. That's all I knew about World War II. I was just scared to death that somebody was going to bomb my house. And, of course, I was still a kid after World War II when all this was going on. But So I had to learn about it later and going by going into the into the old records. And what I discovered was astounding is that sure enough, as I mentioned a moment ago, these big tax-exempt foundations were spreading open communist propaganda. And so the, the awake people at the time were concerned about that. And, and um, William Randolph Hearst, as a matter of fact, was one of those awake people. Uh, you can say whatever you will about Hearst, but he dedicated all of his newspapers to expose this kind of thing. And I was uh, amazed to find some photocopies of uh, or photographed images of front page news on Randolph, uh, William Randolph Hearst's newspapers saying tax exempt foundation spreading communist propaganda or something like this on the front page. Oh, this wow. was not, yeah, this was not news. They were putting editorials on the front page. Okay, that's the background that I think people need to know because I didn't know any of that. But I was able to confirm that it sure it sure happened. So naturally, there was a hue and cry among people all over the United States to find out what the heck is going on with these tax-exempt foundations. So there was a committee in Congress that was hastily put together um, by um, Congressman Reese. It was called the Reese Committee, or better known as the Investigation of Tax-Exempt Foundations Committee. And they hired Norman Dodd as an investigator, chief investigator, for uh, pulling together all the facts about this this assignment that the committee had. So that's where Norman Dodd showed up in the picture. He was the guy 
that was supposed to uh, oversee the staff and gather all the documents and arrange for the testimonies and all of that. And uh, so that came and went, and uh, I never heard of the Reese Committee or Norman Dodd or anything. But now we fast forward to about 1965 or thereabouts, 1966, 1967. And by this time, I'm, uh, I'm alive and I'm awake and I'm reading a lot of history that I never read before. And I'm on fire with what's, what was happening to America back in those early days. Uh, and I was trying to get everybody to listen to me and think, don't you know this is going on? I was kind of silly in that regard. I was certainly going about it in the wrong way. Uh, you know, I'd grab people by the lapel and say, let me tell you this, and they'd, you know, back away. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but almost. <laughs> and so uh, so I came across this information of Norman Dodd. He, he had um, given his testimony before, I think it was the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or it might have been the Senate uh, Internal Security Subcommittee. But anyway, he told about what he had found as an investigator, the chief investigator for the Reese Committee. The Reese Committee, by the way, was terminated because there were very powerful people in Congress that did not want this investigation to go on. And so they started attacking the committee and they started making up lies about it and lies about people. And they were trying to, you know, make it out like these people were fascists. That's the reason they were against uh, all this fine literature that was going out, because they were fascists, and they were probably racists, and they were warmongers, you know, same old story that goes on today. And so the committee was actually disbanded midpoint. It never really completed uh, its investigation, but some reports were released midpoint. And I came across those, and I thought, boy, this is amazing, because Norman Dodd was telling the story about these tax-exempt foundations and what he learned firsthand by interviewing the heads of these large organizations. And I'm reading about this, and my jaw is down to my belt buckle. I couldn't believe what he was writing. I said, I've got to find this guy. So I'm taking too long to tell this story to him, but it is a, it's, that's how I got into it. I found him. I was in um, on the East Coast in Virginia on another mission. I was doing another I was doing a television interview with somebody else. I've forgotten who it was now. I was doing research. Anyway, I was there over a weekend, and I knew that he lived in Virginia, and I thought I'd see if I could find him. I was very lucky. I found him in the telephone directory, and I uh, invited him to come to our um, uh, facility there and uh, sit in front of our cameras and tell his story. He was an old guy. I mean, he's like older than than I am right right now. <laughs> I'm really an old guy. And uh, it was not in good health. Uh, but he agreed to it. He was very anxious to tell his story. Nobody seemed to be interested. So that's how that all started. Now, the story is many-faceted. He just told that when he visited the, these heads of these large tax exempt foundations, they were quite frank with him and what they were trying to do. And I'm going to give you a quote direct quote from Norman Dodd as he described it. He went to, um, I think it was Mr. Rather at the uh, Carnegie Endowment Fund, I believe it was. I get confused now which which uh, institution it was, but I think it was Rather who said, Mr. Dodd, uh, would you like to know what we do here? And uh, Dodd said, <laughs> he almost fell off his chair because he said, yeah, of course, I, that's why I'm here. I want to know what you do here. And he said, without going any further, uh, Rather launched right into it. He said, Mr. Dodd, we here are under directives issued by the White House 
And those directives are to so restructure the United States of America so that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Wait, what? And, yeah, what, what, what? Which, which White House? <laughs> well, that was FDR at the time. Okay. And of course, it was Truman, I probably by this time. Okay. But it makes no difference. These things don't come from the president. Sure. They come from the people who select the president. You know how that goes. But so that was the policy. It was the policy of the State Department at that time, the policy of all of the movers and shakers and the, and the big financial interests at that time was to, is to, not so much to merge the United States with the Soviet Union, as I found out. It was the fact that the Soviet Union was about as far removed from the United States as possible in its political and cultural uh, outlook on society and politics. And so the idea was to create a one world of all nations in one government so that if you could get the United States and the Soviet Union to merge, then everything in the middle would be a piece of cake. And, uh, so that was the reason, as I understood it, that, excuse me, here, uh, that was the reason for um, using the Soviet Union as the example. So anyway, uh, Dodd said he couldn't believe his ears, and he went on and uh, questioned further. And sure enough, he, he found out, and I'm going to give some more summaries. And this is what Dodd is telling me now on camera in that video that you're talking about. Um, they decided these large institutions, they got to pool their resources, which were sizable. I mean, they still are, but even, I mean, in those days, it was the largest single grant giving authority in the world, even bigger than the United States government, which hadn't really gotten into that business quite that much. So here were the largest financial grant institutions in the world trying to uh, make up a, a way in which, uh, I'm going to turn off my smartphone here. I forgot to turn it off, turn it off now. Um, Thank you. Okay. Uh, trying to figure out how to remold the United States and the world so they can all be comfortably merged. And so then the question comes up later, well, how are you going to do that? And the, the answer is, well, it's pretty simple. Uh, all you have to do is just get all these nations into war and keep them into war. And under conditions of a threat of war and destruction and death and violence and chaos and all that, people aren't too concerned about their culture. They're not too concerned about their judicial system or their bill of rights or anything else. They're just concerned about saving their hides and, and preserving their cities and not starving to death and not being conquered and, and captured and enslaved. That's all they think about. And although this wasn't said in so many words, my own mental summary of that was that when a, when a man is drowning, he doesn't want to talk about the Constitution. And that's that was what that's philosophy was all about. Right. So that's what Norman Dodd really spoke about, and they decided that they would use their money to change America in a, in a very special fashion. They said the first thing is to capture the minds of the young people. They knew it was going to be a long process. It wasn't going to happen overnight. Let the old folks die off, and each new succeeding generation coming along would be re-educated or indoctrinated, they said, in the school system. So therefore, their first mission was to take over the school system and, uh, and to rewrite the history books and to change the, and to rewrite history and to uh, get rid of all of the things that would stand in the way that might still be in the history book. They talked about this very openly. So that's Norman Dodd's story. It's how they, how they did that and the, where the money went and who they hired and who they fired and how they, uh, you know, from there you can take the story 
follow it down through the years. But that's that. Norman Dodd was the one that opened that door for us all to see how it was done in a very scientific way. And I think today the significance of Norman Dodd is this, that the analysis that was revealed to him that the way to get people to surrender their liberties and to accept drastic change to their way of life is to scare the daylights out of them with war. That is the lesson that we have to remember because that strategy is still being done today except they don't use just war anymore. They use terrorism. They use uh, use a fear of destruction of the environment. They use bugs and viruses. They'll use anything they can to keep people on the edge of their chairs and worry, oh, well, what are we going to do? We're going we're to die. Now, under those conditions, people don't ask questions. And so that ties Norman Dodd from 1942 all the way down to the present year. What he described as being the strategy laid forth by these large tax-exempt foundations is being used against us today. Yeah. The, now, I'll, I'll let you know this. We are going to be doing this week, the, the week that we're pre-recording the show here, and, and this, this show is going to be airing next week. But this week, we're also going to be interviewing uh, Charlotte Iserbeck. And mm-hmm. uh, she, this ties right in with what you're saying. She's the one who blew the whistle on the fact that the Soviets and Reagan were in cahoots together on the education system and, and things that, you know, that's what, 40 years removed from now. Mm-hmm. So she's mm-hmm. going to be she's going to be talking about that. But let me ask you real quickly. This guy, Norman Dodd, why did they pick him to do this? Um, obviously, he's I'm, I'm assuming he's not a guy on their team. He's not taking orders from the White House to make sure that all this goes through smoothly because he's obviously found some problems. Why did they pick Norman Dodd? Who was he? Well, Norman Dodd had been in the banking fraternity for quite a while, and then uh, he he was sort of uh, pushed out because uh, he had too many good ideas. <laughs> That's basically it. Uh, the, the, uh, he was called in, I've forgotten which bank it was now, but one of the big New York banks, and they said, uh, and by this time, Norman Dodd was a junior executive, but a very smart guy. And they said, uh, Mr. Dodd, we want to give you a nice office here and a big desk, and you can have as much time as you want. I want you to propose uh, to us what we can do to uh, improve banking in America. We've got some problems here. Banks are going bankrupt. There are runs on the bank. We're losing the public is losing, losing confidence in the banking system. What do you recommend? And so Dodd basically took six months or nine months out and put it all together and went in with his report, and they didn't like it. His report was, well, the reason people are are uh, distrusting the banks is because the banks are untrustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> and he didn't use that blunt language, but he said it's because the, the money system is uh, not stable. It's not uh, not backed by anybody. We're, we're creating too much money. There's too much debt. And he, he identified all of the problems, of course, but he wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, he was supposed to be a team player. And they just put him, uh, you know, out the farm. And they said, well, thank you very much, Mr. Dodd. We'll uh, get back with you. And uh, he said after that, he just had nothing to do but to play golf and take vacations. And they paid him well, I guess, just to keep him quiet. So uh, and then he went into private business, and he was, uh, as I recall, he was an advisor. He managed some investment funds for some very wealthy people. He was well known um, as a as a shrewd businessman and an honest person. And much more than that, I don't recall about him, except he was chosen by Mr. Reese, and not by them, and not by the ones who wanted him out. Mr. Reese knew his reputation and his 
his knowledge and his integrity, so he selected the right man. But of course, immediately, those who did not want the committee did everything possible to uh, to block him. And one of the things they did was they loaded up his staff with people that were opposed to the work of the committee. And in fact, uh, Norman Dodd's secretary, I can't think of her name at the moment, maybe if you've been reading the literature, do you recall her name? I don't. It's not it's not important. Uh, let's just call her Anne for okay. the moment. But Anne came on as his personal assistant, and he was assigned to her. He did, wasn't even able to pick her. He was She was assigned to him primarily to block him because um, she she didn't like the idea of the investigating committee at all. Her attitude was, uh, well, tax-exempt foundations do so much good. What could possibly be wrong? This must be a witch hunt. And uh, so he was surrounded with people like that. Interesting story on this woman is that she did go to the, I guess it was the Ford, yeah, the Ford Foundation, and um, and let me back up a bit. Over there at the Ford Foundation, when Mr. Dodd went and asked some questions, they said, "Mr. Dodd, look, you have a lot of questions, and it's a tedious matter to answer all of them. And in fact, it would take some research for us to dig out these answers for you. I have a counter proposal," they said. Why we'll assign, we'll open up a room, a private room, and a table and some workspace there, and uh, you can send over somebody from your staff, and we'll open up all of our minutes, all of our private meeting minutes from day one, and you can examine the minutes of all of our meetings, and everything you want to know will be in those minutes. And Dodd said that he couldn't believe it. He said he, he said this guy that he was talking to was a young fellow, newly appointed. And he said he must not have read the minutes himself because, anyway, he leaped at the opportunity to do that. And so this gal, Anne, who we're calling her at the moment, was the one that went to look at the minutes and transcribe them and, and put them in her dictaphone machine and so forth. And, and she wrote up a, a summary of them. Now, the interesting part of that story is that this woman was so shocked by what she read and it upset her so much that she had to resign. She, she was so emotionally involved and so, uh, so affected by it that she couldn't do her work anymore. And uh, she, she walked away. She couldn't do it. And uh, because what she found out is exactly what I'm telling you, is that they decided that the, the best thing for their goal was to keep America in the war, to prolong the war, to, to delay the armistice, to keep keep the fighting going because the more war, the more destruction, and the more fear there was at home, the more rapidly they would be able to change the soul of America to what they wanted. And this woman uh, couldn't take that. But I mentioned that because uh, Reese himself was, was not the only person. He had a staff, and many, if not most of those people, were working against him. Okay. All right. Now, some of this sounds like uh, an interview that I heard with uh, Aaron, uh, excuse me, Aaron, Aaron Russo, and mm -hmm. where he talked about talking with uh, was it Nicholas Rockefeller, and mm -hmm. saying basically, I'm telling you, they're going to be look, they're going to be starting wars in the Middle East. They're going to be looking for people in, in in caves and stuff, but it's all fake. And it's kind of interesting to hear that, and then hear what you're saying here. This these distractions that get us looking everywhere. You know, we talk about on the Sons of Liberty. One is I wonder where. Tax exempt foundations are in the Constitution here. I don't. I don't know that that's a thing. That seems like that. That's uh, just uh, opening up a can of worms for your enemies to attack you. And indeed, they are doing that. 
when you look at other things, and it makes me think of something when you're when you're saying they're going to use these to sort of undermine things, to bring in communism for the education, all this other stuff. This then leads to the issue because the IRS recognizes churches automatically as tax exempt, okay? But then they want churches to jump through a 501c3 hoop. And we hear it all the time. Well, you can't talk about politicians. You can't talk about politics. You can't talk about this, that, and that. It's basically a muzzle on a lot of churches. Now, I know there are some who have taken 501c3, and they don't. They just ignore that, and they preach the Word of God. And I'm glad for those churches. I'm happy for them. And I've been part of both of, of, of those. Is this a way also into the churches to, I don't know, manipulate preachers to preach down things that are soft. You know, our forefathers preached resistance to tyranny was obedience to God when they really actually preach what the Bible says, because it doesn't allow for tyranny. It doesn't allow for communism and all this other stuff. It really doesn't allow for that. Do you think that they've inf infiltrated the churches in the same manner uh, that you're talking about with these tax foundations? Well, I think it's a bunch worse than that, actually. I think they've infiltrated the churches in, in many different levels. Uh, we're talking here basically about the uh, the power of economic coercion. Now, that's not infiltration of the church. That's just uh, putting a, a lid on them. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the, now, infiltration is a very real thing, and uh, we don't have to guess about that because we've had plenty of of defectors and plenty of people on the inside. And besides, we can go to the textbooks themselves that are used by uh, the communist training centers around the world, especially the older ones back in the 50s and 60s, where it was very plainly stated in those textbooks that uh, the best way to, um, I've forgotten the word they use it, but to deactivate or to, they had a lot of different words, the best way to eliminate religion uh, from the list of opponents to communism and, of course, they were talking about communism. Adolf Hitler said pretty much the same thing, and that was fascism. Um, but anyway, the, the idea was that the best way to remove churches uh, f from the position of resisting this tyranny is to infiltrate them, to send p people into their ranks pretending to be real, genuine, God-believing preachers who want to devote their lives. And, and they actually go to seminaries, and they, they read up on it, and they learn the lingo, and they can act and pretend very well indeed. But their mission always from the beginning is to be on the inside and to work up, weasel in, and then bring their friends in and promote each other till finally a couple of generations have gone by, and they own the organizations that they infiltrated because nobody else has any suspicion that this is going on. And that has been going on. And I think that is the most difficult and the most um, if, most difficult thing for Americans to believe because they just can't believe that the guy up there in the pulpit preaching such wonderful sermons is really an enemy of theirs. They don't understand the, the complete depravity of, this, uh, depravity of, the stat, of, the, uh, uh, of the strategies that these people use. Yeah, well, the Bible tells us, I mean, it warns us, it says that angel, or excuse me, Satan disguises his ministers as angels of light. So this isn't anything really new. Uh, Paul was saying, writing that back in the first century. We, we know that happens. We know that God said he would send false prophets among the people to see whether or not they loved him or whether they loved the false prophet who tickled their ears. So I know there are people who come in. I just often thought it was just people who were just unbelievers or they were ignorant or something like that. 
And I never really thought until you made mention of this, could it be that there's been actual infiltration by communists in the pulpit? And I would think that's one of the the devil's greatest uh, tactics is to go right into the people of God and to well, to deceive them like that. Well, of course. Uh, what would you do if you were yeah. on the other side? Now, it's not just churches. How about sending people into your governments? Yes. Yep. I mean, how how about getting to be your congressmen and your senators and your presidents and your governors and your mayors and your city council members? You know, I mean, it's not just churches. These are these are organizations and institutions that the enemies of liberty know they must control. And the only way, they don't want to beat them and fight them. They want to control them and use them against us. And it's, it's uh, strategically wise. And they've written about this. And this is particularly a favorite uh, tactic of the Fabian socialists. Uh, and there's a whole group of there that people don't know much about. But there are, there's a group of socialists uh, that started with the Fabian Socialist Society in London. And now they've got all kinds of little subgroups and, and so forth. And, and they call themselves socialists, communists, fascists, all these things. But the real word is collectivist. They're all the same under the skin. They all believe in the principle of collectivism. And so they can move from one to the other. And they all agree that the best way to control people is to, is to take over their institutions that they trust. And nobody's guarding the doors. They can just walk right in and say, oh, yeah. In fact, Lenin, I remember when I first started to read the works of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. He, he was a prolific writer on this strategy. His whole, most of his writing was all about how to uh, come to power, comrades. He said, look, when you, go, when you go into a country and you want to, uh, you know, take over their institutions, you don't tell them, I'm a communist and I'm going to bring revolution to your country and throw you guys out. No, no, you're going to say, oh, yes, I love your country. I am, I am you. I am your brother. And uh, I believe in nationalism. I don't like in, uh, uh, internationalism. I hate communism. I'm an anti-communist. And Lenin says, tell them what they want to hear so you, they will accept you as their leader. Then when you have the power, you shoot them. Now, it doesn't get any more plain than that. That was Lenin. That was Hitler. That's Stalin. That's I won't I won't get any more modern than that because I'll be <laughs> stepping on people's toes. <laughs> but that is throughout history. Go ahead and, and step applies, on some it toes. Applies to, it applies to churches as well as to educational institutions and corporations and everything. They don't like to feed, to meet you head on in battle. They want to attack you from the rear through your institutions that you follow. I don't mind if you want to state some uh, names there and some modern modern things. That's great, because I think people need to be confronted with it. And if they reject it, that's fine. But if it causes somebody to say, wait a minute, how is that guy? And they think along the lines, you know, we've just come out of uh, an election. Obviously, there's fraud that's committed. The guy who's in there, in my opinion, uh, is in there fraudulently. The, the lady who's in there is obviously a fraud because she's not even a natural born citizen. Um, and, but we come at it from under a Donald Trump and you and I last time we t talked and the things you were saying, I, I was just looking. Going, uh -huh, uh -huh. And then when I asked you about Trump, you just kind of smiled like, yep, you get it. You get what's going on there. Um, and these kind of things come along. The question I have is because people are hearing it and they're probably going, well, what can we do about it? What can we really do now? My estimation is D.C. is so corrupt. I don't see us cleansing that i see us having to dissolve it in some way or another uh by the states but then we got the same kind of battle in many state legislatures these guys are in the state legislature so what would be an approach that we could deal with 
uh, say a tax foundation. Let's take let's take something like um, uh, the Carnegies that you mentioned before, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or you know, pick your foundation. What would what could the people do at this point to stop it? Because it looks like the government has their hand in their cookie jar. They've got the their hand in the government's cookie jar, which is our money, and they're working together. And the people really don't have a say so in that. What what can we do about that? Well, that's a tough question. First of all, there are many different layers to that question. It's uh, the first layer is what can we do as individuals, and the second layer is well, if we if we ever got our act together and we're able to form into a large enough group of people that we had some influence and some power, then what would we do? And those are two different issues. Most people want to deal with the second one first. They they just assume, well, we the people, we have the power. No, we the people do not have the power today. Now, we should have had it, but we let it go because we were too busy dancing with the stars or playing golf or whatever we were doing. And And we didn't know that these collectivists were taking over our institutions. And we the, the very institutions that we allowed to be our leadership the people we trusted, the, the, the court system, the police, the, the integrity of the military, all of those things, we just trusted them because they had the United States of America written on them, and therefore they were good. We didn't look beneath that to see what had people been doing those to those institutions for the last four or five generations. So um, taking it at the first level, what, uh, people ask me often, well, what can one person, what can I do? Is it, what can the average person do is how it usually comes to me. And the answer is kind of flippant, but it's real. And that is the average person can't do anything. Absolutely impossible. So if you want to do something, the first thing you want to do is stop being average. The average person is Amen. Afra- afraid. The average person doesn't want to spend a lot of time or certainly no money. The average person is... Uh, wants to be loved and, and respected by everybody. The average person doesn't really know what freedom is all about. Average person doesn't take an interest in politics. The average person doesn't read. The average person trusts authority too much. The average person has no rudder. It has no purpose in life. What, what can the average person do? Absolutely nothing. He's, he's gone. So there are plenty of unaverage people, and fortunately it only takes about, well, about 3% of the population historically can change the course of the nation. It's always been that way. 3%, look it up. The American Revolution was fought and run, won. The war was won by 3% of the population. And within that group, there was only 1% that were really the thought leaders and the movers and shakers. And the other 3% you know, rallied around and they, they fought and sacrificed and so forth. And then there was another uh, 12% Add that to the group and you've got 15%. The 12% were the, the ones that, whose hearts were in the right place, but they just didn't know what to do, and they were looking for leaders. And so now you have this hardcore of 15% that's really led by the 3%, according to a plan developed by the 1%, and you have the capacity to change any direction of history. It's always been that way. So now we come to the second question or a second layer of what to do about it. Well, supposing we had that 1% directing the 3%, directing the 15%, what would we then do? And to tell you the truth, I don't know. 
But I do know that we can't do anything without it. But I do think that if we had 15% of the people that were in communication with each other and weren't all, you know, locked up in their basements and with masks and afraid to come out and, and the first time somebody says, hey, you put your mask on, they go run it, oh, put it on. And if we had 15% that said, no, wait a minute, I'm standing firm for a principle that I think I understand and you don't have the right to tell me. If we had that kind of unity and we had a, a plan to take back the system and I like the idea that somebody has suggested a moment ago, or, or you suggested, that was, we take it back from the bottom up, not from the top down, because that's where the foundation that's right. is always there. You can't just say, who are you going to vote for and get in the White House? Oh, we got the right guy in the White House. Uh, we won the battle. It's all over now. We can go back to our golf game. No way. This freedom is embedded at the ground level. And the top, the, the leaders at the top, right on top of that, that structure underneath them. You take the structure away and there's nothing left. So I believe that the first step is to have a, a statement of principles, ideological principles that everyone can agree with. See, the one thing about the United States of America that I consider to be, uh, I, hate, I hesitate to use the word fatal, but almost a fatal weakness and this is, no, this is no criticism of the United States because, after all, it's a beta model. We were the beta model in all of this business of we the people and, and limitations on the power of government and all of that. So the fact that it's not 100% workable forevermore is quite natural. The fact that it lasted 100 years and then decayed for 100 years is uh, still amazing because it was a great beta model. But now what I'm getting to is this, that nobody knows what the principles of freedom were. All they know is that we fought against the king. The king was a tyrant. And we don't like tyrants. And so we fought for liberty. And that's about where it ends with most patriots today. Liberty over tyranny. That's not good enough. Because how do you define liberty? How do you define it? What is liberty? What does it take to be free? Most people think you're free if you're not in jail. Yeah, no. And, that's that's not... So, that's not the, the case. point yeah. I'm trying to make here is that you you can fight against a tyranny. You know what that is. You don't like it. I mean, they they it's unjust. It's unfair. They're cruel. It messes everything up. So we don't like that tyrant, and we overthrow that tyranny and replace it with another one just like it. Because the guy that we put into office was deceiving us. He said, "Ah, oh, I hate." Let's just say I hate the Republicans, and we're. Oh, well, I do too. Or I hate the Democrats. Oh, I do too. That's all we want to know. Do you hate my? Enemy, then you're my man. People, I vote for the lesser of two evils. These are the things that destroyed America because people yep. didn't know what they were for. So when we do it the next time, we've got to have a statement of principles. I came up with one some years ago. I, so far, it's looking pretty good, and that's the creed of freedom. But if we don't know what we're for, then there's no strategy that's going to work. So we start with a, with a creed of freedom or a statement of ideological principles. And then we have to put into place a constitutional revision of some kind, and I think it can be done, I've been thinking about it a lot, which will prevent those of us who come back into power from being corrupted by that power, just like others are corrupted. We're the good guys, right? We'll never be corrupted by power, we say. But what about our children? What about those who replace us after we're gone? 
And what about those who replaced those who replaced us after we're gone? Sooner or later, if we don't have a system with built-in procedures, explanations, and everything so clear that you couldn't miss it in place that prevents, somehow prevents those in power from being corrupted by that power, we're going to lose again. The cycle is going to go over and over and over again. So I guess my short answer to you is that I don't really know in terms of this step, that step, and the next step. But the first thing is we have to create that 1% that will rally the 3%, that will rally the 15%, that will really go out and do all the work. And while that is going on, we need to perfect the things I'm, the ideological things I'm talking about, or actually beforehand, otherwise people won't know what they're rallying around. So it's a tough job, but this is the moment in history when we're motivated to put everything else aside. Everything else gets put aside right now, and we have to work on the problems that I'm now describing. And I think in, in the long run, we're going to be very grateful. Maybe our descendants will look back at this time in history and say, well, thank God they had the problems back in, in 2020 and 2021 that they had. Because if they never had those problems in that crisis, they never would have gotten off their fat couches and done anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, Bradley brings up the fact that there is these Chinese characters. One means K or opportunity, and I forget what the other one was. Um, Preparedness. Crisis. crisis. Oh, okay. Crisis and opportunity. They, they're, the, they're, they're the same letter, if I'm understanding it correctly. Oh. And it just depends on which, which way you're looking at it. Are you looking at it as the doom and gloom, or are you looking at it as an opportunity to win mm. the day? And that's what we want to do here at the Sons of Liberty. We want to see the win the day. We're not interested in just pointing out the problems. You got to see the problem before you can deal with it. That that needs to be done. I mean, a mm -hmm. doctor can't do what he does unless he identifies the problem. Uh, he can't, you know, help you in some way unless he identifies the problem. So that's a good thing. You mentioned freedom and liberty, and we did a show on this one time. It's been a couple of years ago, but we talked about freedom being a state of mind that even if you're in chains. Even if you're in a prison cell, you can have freedom of the mind because that's really where they capture you first. So you can have freedom in the mind. And then liberty is really the translation of what we call rights. It is what we can do if we have a free mind, what we actually practice. And so that's what we call them. That's what we call them rights. There are liberties, our authorities, so that we can do our duties before God, whether that is to keep and bear arms, to protect their families, to secure a free state, protect their neighbors, any of this kind of stuff, or whether it's free speech to speak out against these things like we're talking about now. So when we have those kinds of things, I think that's an, that's an opportune time for doing some of these things. I would think one of the things, you know, we spoke just before going on air, uh, Tony Roman out there at Basilico's in uh, Huntington Beach, you know, he's standing his ground. He's not trying to go out there and muscle anybody. He's just a, a simple American who wants to stand his ground, uh, obtain, you know, hold to his liberties and keep his business open. And he's done that and he's defied the tyrants. And so far he's been winning the day. And I think that's what you're talking about on the individual level. The other thing is to get people who have that same goal in mind that says, you know what? Our rights to come to us from our creator. And as a result, we've got certain duties to do under that creator. And we can't do them if tyrants are coming down and infringing on our liberties. So I, I think they do go hand in hand. I think you're exactly right. But the thing is, the other side seems to have this idea of organization put in place that many who might think like we do 
don't seem to have. And would you say that's a result of the education system or would you say that's more of the propaganda that just comes out from it? I'm thinking about that. I think the, I think the fact that we don't have the organization needs to be clarified a little bit. Um, we don't have the right kind of organization, I think, uh, in order to do battle with the kind of organization that you're talking about that is that supports the tyranny. Uh, the state, let's talk about that organization. The state has the legal right to use coercion, has the legal right to, to kidnap somebody, has the legal right to kill somebody. And nobody objects because the state has the right, or we gave, we gave it the authority, I should say, to kill people, right? Uh, in defense of our own life, liberty, and property, because we have the right to kill, if necessary, in defense of our life, liberty, or property. I mean, it's, it's an extreme measure, but nobody would, nobody would blame anyone else for killing somebody who was trying to kill them. Unhappy event though it may be, it's still, it's self-defense. So we, if we have the right to kill in defense of our life, liberty, and property, then theoretically at least we have the ability to delegate that power to the state and let a certain class of people who we approve to exercise that right on our behalf. It's like hiring a bodyguard. It's no different except the scale. So we, when we hire a bodyguard, we, we don't tell the bodyguard that, okay, I've hired you as my bodyguard, so now you have the right to go next door and tell my neighbor what to do. Right. Okay, I, I don't, because I don't have the right to tell my neighbor what to do. So, but people get the funny idea that once they hire an, elect, an elected representative and a politician, they somehow delegated to that politician the right to do anything that he wants to do in the name of the betterment of society or something, just because we elected him. So first we have to get all that straightened out. So the state, we have to realize, in the words of George Washington, whether he wrote them or not, they're good words, he said, government is not reason, uh, it is power. Yep, it's force. And he said, it's force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. So, but this is the organization that we're up against now. Uh, the, the state has the legalized uh, authority to use violence and force against us all because we agreed to it. Silly though we were. And now, but we, we, we gave that power, but we didn't follow up to say, now, hmm, let's take a look at who, is, who we gave that to. And do, we didn't put any limitations on them. We didn't say, hey, you guys, you can't just, you can't use that rifle I gave you for any reason at all. Uh, you can only use it for this purpose and that purpose, and that's it, buddy. We never did that. We just said, well, okay, you are now have our authority to defend us. And that's where, that was the mistake. Uh, we should have been far more specific and limiting and with detailed descriptions of this, but not that, this, I but agree. not that, and so forth. And uh, so I'm rambling back to what to do about it. Uh, I think once we get all of these and when we get everybody together, yeah, we're all mad, we're all determined, we're going to stand firm for liberty, like Tony Roman, a great guy, by the way. I hope to meet him soon. Uh, but that's the first step. Now we have to figure out, on top of that, this is what all the other revolutions have done. They've always said, that's enough, we're not going to take anymore, and they overthrow the old tyranny. And with the passage of time, a new tyranny comes up in its place. We do not want to do that. 
And if we don't decide now on how to prevent that from happening, then we're participating in just that usual turnover of one tyranny after the other. We don't want to do that. So I'm trying to answer your question as best I know how, which is that I'm all for raising resistance to tyranny. But as we are doing that, I want everybody to think in terms of, okay, what do we believe in? What kind of this? When we win, at whatever price, and it's going to be a huge price, I'm afraid, but when we win, now what are we going to do to prevent the same thing happening to our children and our grandchildren? And that's where I come into the picture. That's the that's the thing that has most of my attention in the last couple of years and where I will continue to be working. You know, Mr. Griffin, I think one of the things is, and you know, I'm, I'm biblically minded in that because I think God has given us his law and I think he's put in there things that can restrain that. I'm not talking about people who take the Bible and abuse it or abuse people with it, but I think he's given us law and I think he's given us just punishments and he's taught us how to do it. And I think the whole idea of a militia is one of the, where the people do it and they've usurped, or they they've shirked their responsibility. So in my mind, one of the things is the, the you talked about a high price. The more the price is paid, the greater the people see the need to do their duty instead of relinquish it to somebody else. And uh, I, I think that's going to come more and more. I've said it before, hungry bellies and all this. But we're coming up against the end of the show. And I want to give you uh, a chance to talk about, uh, you got about a minute here. Talk about your Red Pill University and your Red Pill Expo that's coming up. Okay. Well, actually, we have been talking about it all along okay. because these are the these are the issues that are are going to be on stage at Red Pill Expo. Well, everybody knows about the Red Pill meme. You know, take the Red Pill man, wake up to reality, and all of that. That's what we're we have two days at June fifth and sixth in um, Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, of all places. Yes, it's uh, the gateway to Mount Rushmore, and it's it's one of the few states where they. Uh, don't require you to wear masks and stand in line and and, and salute the health officer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we thought that was a good place to go. But to, uh, go to our website. I'm glad you put this uh, the uh, website up on the screen. Uh, and the uh, URL is uh, redpillexpo.org. Uh, we don't have time to go through all the speakers, and we're still adding speakers. But these are the top names in this revolution of the mind that's going on for liberty uh, all around the world right now, and. Uh, and if you if you don't want to put a mask on and take an airplane or a test or something, which I don't, uh, how about getting in the car and seeing America from Amen. the ground for a change, like the, like the good old days? That's Amen. what we're going to do. Mr. Griffin, thank you for joining us again. And again, folks, this is redpillexpo.org. We'll have it on, a link on the archives on sunslibertymedia.com later this morning. Also, redpilluniversity.org. Check that out. 23 hours. See you. Thank you.